Hello, and welcome to the Writers Guild Foundation podcast. My name is Enid Portuguese, and I'm the communications director at the foundation. This event recording is from our March 24th event with Frank Spotnitz, the executive producer of Amazon's hit series, The Man in the High Castle. It was all about world building, which is essential for a show based on Philip K. Dick's novel, whose premise centers on what it would be like if the Axis powers won World War II. Spotness is also known for his work as a writer and producer on X-Files, which he delves into during the talk for any huge X-Files fans. Spotnitz is currently based in Europe, so he also shares some interesting insight and gives some valuable advice on writing for overseas productions. Really, really interesting stuff that we had no idea about. The moderator for the event was Neil Landau, the head of UCLA's Writing for Television program and author of the book TV Outside the Box, Trailblazing in the Digital Television Revolution. Landau also interviews Spotnitz for his book, as well as tons of writers and producers who've been integral to the boom in digital and streaming. It's sold on Amazon, so go check it out. But first, listen to this wonderful conversation with Frank Spotnitz. Great turnout. Uh, I, Look at all these I don't know if it was mentioned. Did, did he mention that my connection with UCLA Film School? Um, I always tell my students, never begin a pitch or any presentation with a caveat or an excuse. Um, so I'm not going to do that, but I am going to start with a little anecdote, um, which is in, two th- in 2000, I was working in Toronto on a show, and I went to go see Tina Turner. And... Uh, <laughs> And I was really looking forward to it. This is the woman who David Bowie described as the hottest place in the universe. And she came out on stage and she said, I have to tell you that I have a, I have a cold. And I'm sorry, and I hope I do a, a good performance for you. Um, so I'm very sorry to tell you that I have a terrible head cold. And, but I wouldn't miss this for the world. And I apologize. So it, and I'm hopped up on cold medicine. Uh, so <laughs> if, I suddenly, if I suddenly lose language or, you know... Um, coherence uh you will exactly um but fortunately for you i'm not the tina turner of this event this man is <laughs> i'm more I was of wondering a, where that was going okay <laughs> i cannot dance <laughs> i'm more of a background dancer or back, background singer um I'm, I'm an iCat when they used to be called iCats but we we know how that turned out um so um anyway so what i wanted to do is kind of steal a page from James Lipton. Um, and st- I kind of broke this down into different sections. Which, So I first want to talk um, about backstory, which I'm also seeing, a.k.a. psychotherapy. Because okay. I really want to know more about you, because I think that when you know about you know, somebody's past and backstory, it can help us kind of get a picture and a sense of your sensibilities and how you became who you are. And um, so, It's going to be interesting for yes. me. Well, one of the things... and. Don't worry, this is the last time you'll hear about this, this damn book. But it's like, it's like um, Hillary's emails. Um, you won't hear about it anymore. But, um, <laughs> it's a great book, by the way. Not but just because I'm in it. It is a great book. There is an interview with Frank in, in the book. But what's so exciting for me particularly is uh, at the time of the interview, there was only a pilot for Man in the High Castle. And now, as you know, the full season is available, and it's wonderful. So I'm very excited to have since seen it. And one of the things when I interviewed Frank back at that time, um, I learned that you were born in Japan. 
um, which was my first question, but I just answered it. Um, <laughs> it's going to be easier than I thought. Right. <laughs> That's it. Time for time for. A, um, when did you move to the U.S. and what were the circumstances? You said you were born in Camp Jama. Uh, Zama. Zama. Zama with a Z. Z. That's right. That, that was the cold medicine. I have it spelled <laughs> right here too. Kent Zama, Japan. So, how did you? How did your family end up being there, and then when did you come to the U.S.? So my father was a doctor in the Army, and we were stationed at an Army base, Camp Zama, with a Z. Uh, and I was born there and lived there till I was four. Uh, but because he was in the Army, we moved a lot. So we moved from there to Denver, Colorado, from there to Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, from there to Phoenix, Arizona, and then he retired from the Army. Uh, and I spent the rest of my childhood there before coming to UCLA. Ah, great, great, great choice. Um, well, and you did your undergrad at um, UCLA in literature. Yes. And then you went to the AFI for your MFA, is that right? Well, so, I don't know how interesting this is to you, but I graduated high school early intending to study film, but you could not start at UCLA in the film program in the spring, so I... That's right. I chose English literature, intending to transfer... But my very first quarter at UCLA, I took a journalism class that changed my life. Amazing professor. I read all these books of journalism that just got me so excited. So I went to work on the college paper, became editor of the paper, forgot all about pursuing film. I think I was actually a chicken. I was a little afraid. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of not kidding because I, I thought this business was so intimidating. And where I grew up, people didn't go into this business. Um, and I thought, well, journalism seems more achievable. Um, and I did that for seven years. Um, and after seven years, I just couldn't deny that it wasn't what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And it had taken me from uh, L.A. to Indiana to New York and ultimately to Paris. I kept moving to cities trying to get more interested in being a journalist. <laughs> um, and as wonderful as Paris was, I just didn't want to do it. So I um, applied to film school and moved back to L.A. at the age of 28 to go to the American Film Institute. That's and it. then um, X-Files was my first job. And I'm going to come back to how that actually happened. But I'm, these are some of these are just my own curiosities, which I hope will be interesting to you. Um, family of origin. Um, if you've been to therapy, they always, that's where they always go and look for things. Um, would you say, and you don't have to answer these things, did you, would you say you had a happy childhood? Did you have a good relationship with your parents? Um, do you have any siblings? Wow. I'm trying to get to you. <laughs> What I'm trying, were you a bedwetter? No, I'm not going <laughs> No, Who told I'm, you? How I'm you? trying to get to, well, when you look at your body of work, there is a, a lot thread. of bedwetting. There's a thread. <laughs> Sarah Silverman talks about being right, a bedwetter. So, right. so, you know. Um, there is a thread that runs through your work of paranoia, conspiracy That's theories, true. mistrust, true. senses of um, yes. estrangement, um, being. Um, I feel so naked up here. <laughs> Yes, that's all true. Um, I'm just wondering where that, you know, because, you know, you kind of write stuff and it, it often helps you resolve things that you want to work out in your personal lives. And I know this isn't group therapy, but I'm just kind of curious both how you got the job on the X-Files, which kind of started that road, and also, you know, your interest in that. And is that something that you personally, are you, have you been a conspiracy theorist? And is it something you're personally been interested in in your life as well? Well, I, I actually have said this to, to many of uh, the writers I've met. I think if you're a writer, there's something wrong. <laughs> I say that in the nicest possible way. Something, something has happened that is not good. 
that has made you decide you should spend a long section of your life alone in a room <laughs> staring at a screen? Like, why would you do that? And so I do think, um, yeah, there were some, some things that were not terribly happy. I don't think I was an unhappy person, but there were some things that were not um, terribly satisfying. And, and part of it was moving around a lot as a child, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I think uh, forced me to be sort of self-sufficient. But I think that's probably one of the reasons why I lived in my own head a lot. Um, and I, I had parents who didn't supervise my television watching. So um, I watched thousands of hours. I watched everything. And of course, you know, Shows like The Twilight Zone or Outer Limits or Mission Impossible, The Wild Wild West or Man From Uncle. I mean, I could go on and on. I watched everything and more than once. And I was obsessed with Star Trek. I mean, I should have said Star Trek first. Uh, mm -hmm. I was a huge, huge fan. Um, so in a way, I was preparing for this, you know, when I was a small child and it, and it burned into my brain. Um, I don't know that I could explain to you why I have such easy access to paranoia, but I do. It's absolutely true. And X-Files was my first job. I was completely green, not really qualified, but somehow stuck because it was exactly the kind of show I would have watched if I was a kid and it was on TV. I understood it. Even though I don't think my craft was right, was up to snuff in the beginning, I understood it and I could speak to the heart of the show. I say this with all modesty. Um, I could speak to the heart of the show pretty quickly. And I think Chris Carter, who was a tough boss, and most writers didn't last on that show, um, recognized that in me and gave me the time to grow, uh, for which I'll always be grateful. So it was the right show for me. Uh, and I think, you know, it was the professional ex experience of my life because I learned so much from that show. Um, I think, you know, the first thing I learned was, and I'll, I'll talk for a little while and then you can ask me, is that... Um, that was my next question. Okay. What did you learn on the X-Files, Frank? The first thing I learned was um, you can never be smart enough. The audience is always smarter than you are. No matter how smart you think you are, they're smarter than, than you are. Um, you can never be ambitious enough. And you'd see writers who'd come in, and, and I probably was guilty of it myself once or twice, not often though, and go, well, this will be a good episode. This will be good. And if you say that, it's going to suck. <laughs> right? Because you can't aim for the middle and expect to reach the middle. You've got to aim for, like, up here. You've got, every time you write an episode, you've got to go, this is going to be the greatest episode of television ever, and here's why, and I mean it. And if you're lucky, it'll turn out good, hmm. right? Because you're, you're, you'll aim here, and then you'll land here. But if you aim here, you're going to land here. And the funny thing is, I worked my butt off on X-Files. I mean, I worked so hard. That was my life for uh, many, many years. And I spent more time with Mulder and Scully than anybody else. And um, the harder you work, the more energy it gives you to keep working mysterious. Mm. The harder you apply yourself to something, the more energy you have to keep applying harder. And the moment you go, oh, well, that's good enough. I'll stop there. The converse is true. It starts to sap your energy and your excitement and your commitment. So I, I gave everything I had and I was rewarded commensurately. Mm -hmm. um, and so those lessons have stayed with me. And, and the most important thing I learned um, as all of you in this room, no doubt, are aware, you can be so distracted in this business and in this town by how much money is that person making, what job does that person have, 
Um, what reviews did they get? And none of that is what matters. And you just have to remember the only thing that matters is the work. And am I doing the best I can? Am I doing work that I am proud of? I don't know if it's going to be successful. I never know. If anything I do is successful or even good, I just know that I've tried my best, that I love it. I must love it if it's going to be any good. And I hope other will, uh, people will too. But if you do that, if you just think about doing good work, you are much more likely to make some money and get good reviews and have all those other things you want. And if you don't, none of that stuff matters anyway. It's, it's a hollow victory. And it sounds like a very simple thing to say, but it's amazing how often people, including a lot of people I work with, have to be reminded of that, that it's just about the work. And, and I try to find people, collaborators, who feel the same way, who just want it to be great. And it's so much easier to work with nice people than to work with jerks. <laughs> and, and the nice people tend to be the ones who, who bear that in mind as well. Do you find joy in, I'll call it perfectionism, you know, just really wanting to raise the bar extremely high? Or is it mixed? Or is there, you know, because a lot of writers talk about the pain and suffering of trying to get that draft just right. Are you at a point where you... Um, the process itself is enjoyable, or is it still getting it there and wanting to be finished that really gives you the, the most joy? The joy I have is in working with other people uh, and in seeing how other people make what I do better. Mm. I mean, that really is incredibly satisfying. And I, and I would say that when the work goes well, it's satisfying. Um, it's very hard. It's still hard for me. It's always been hard. You know, I know very few people... Um, for whom it's easy. Matter of fact, I don't know anybody for whom it's easy. I know s some writers who enjoy writing. I can't say that I do. I, I, I was saying to somebody, it's like exercise. I'm really glad when it's over. You know, I'm glad I did it, but, mm -hmm. but, um, and, and I feel better that I did it, but I can't say I enjoyed it while I was doing it. Um, but, you know, I tend to think that writing is one of those things uh, you'll never master. You know, I don't care who you are, the best writer in the world, you know, pick uh, William Goldman, Aaron Sorkin, uh, Billy Wilder, it doesn't matter who it is, you know, they're never going to be perfect every time out. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is so difficult, right? You're trying to understand the world around you and people and how they behave and say something that's hopefully true. And we're all limited. We're all just people, you know, writing from our own points of view. So you have to be resigned to the fact that you're going to fail, but you're trying your, your hardest. And, um, it's a good way to spend your life, I think, because you're not hurting anybody. Mm -hmm. You're making something. You're creating. And, and that's the amazing thing to me. It's like you see an hour of television. It's like, wow, that wasn't there before. <laughs> now it's there. And, and if people want to, they can keep watching it. You know, that's, that's very satisfying. So it's also an, an itch that you kind of need to scratch um, because you could walk away if you really wanted to at this See, point. but I think it gets back to your first question about, you know, there's something wrong. <laughs> because, <laughs> because why do you want to spend so much of your life in this imaginary world? Why do you want to, like, retreat from your children and your wife and nice dinners and sit there suffering alone in your room and, and live in your own head? And I, I think that probably a lot of people in this room, it's the power of your imagination, the power of mm -hmm, these worlds mm -hmm. that you really feel so intensely... And, you know, I think there is a sense of wanting to understand something when you write, get to the bottom of it, and then share it with other people. And, and I do think, you know, you don't write 
just for yourself. You write to communicate. You know, above all, it's an act of communication, and you want to reach people and move people. And you know, do you feel the same way I feel? Um, and and I think that's what keeps me going. And I'm I'm at the age now where I feel like uh, there's more stories that I would like to tell that I'm going to have time to tell. So I'm very uh, greedy to to do a lot. Um, I want to ask you about some of your favorite X-Files episodes um, that you're most proud of and, and, and maybe why, whether you wrote them or not. But before that, I was, how, how did you actually get the job? Uh, okay, so this is a funny story. I told somebody before, but I'll, um, I, as I said, I moved from Paris back to LA to go to film school. And before I even started at the AFI, I was invited to join a book group. And in this book group were some really interesting people, and one of them wrote TV movies for Disney, and his name was Chris Carter. <laughs> so I was in this book group with Chris and all these other people for about two years, and we'd meet every few months and read classic books and talk about them over dinner. He was a really nice guy, very smart. And then the book group came to an end, and I finished film school, and I'm watching TV one Friday night, and oh, it's The X-Files by Chris Carter. Oh, the guy from my book group. He created that show. Wow, this is pretty good. And so I kept watching it. I watched every Friday. I really like this show. This is very good. And then toward the end of the first season, a friend of mine whom I'd known since I was 10 years old, who'd also moved out here to become a writer, called me and said, Frank, don't you know that guy, Chris Carter? And I said, yeah, we were in the book group together. And he goes, well, I would like to write some episodes of The X-Files. Will you call him for me and see if he'll <laughs> hear my ideas? I go, wow, this is really awkward because, you know, I never even called him to say congratulations on the show or anything. <laughs> And I'm going to call him and ask for a favor for a friend. But I had known him since I was 10, so all right, I'll call. So I call him, and he takes my call, and he goes, no, I, w I won't hear your friend's idea, but if you have any. Uh -oh. So I call my friend. <laughs> so uh, I, I was easy to come up with ideas. I'd watched every episode. And I, I go in, and I thought it would just be him, right? And it was him and two or three other producers. It was rather intimidating. And I pitched these three ideas, and he shot them all down. Sent me home with my tail between my legs. Well, that was a big waste of time, kind of embarrassing. And then I think it was like six weeks later, he calls me and says, um, I didn't buy any of your ideas, but they were all good. Here's what was good about this one, this one, this one. I'm losing two of my writers. Now, by the way, it, if you know X-Files, it was Glenn Morgan and Jim Wong that he was losing. Um, how would you like to come on staff? That's how it happened. I had not written for television. I was out of film school, completely unqualified, replacing Glenn, Glenn Morgan and Jim Wong. <laughs> Nothing could be more ridiculous. Um, but, as I said, I did have an immediate connection to the show, and he was the kind of boss who gave you far more responsibility than he should have. So, literally, on the third day I was there, he sent me into the editing room to fix an episode called, I think it's Excelsius Day or something. I don't know if you remember this. It was an old people's home, and, and they were eating magic mushrooms or something. And, and he's, But anyway, the episode was not working. So, Frank, you go in and fix it. You, you know, you're out of film school. You've never worked on a television show before. Go in there and fix it. And, uh, and then he did the same thing. There's a sound mix. I want you to go and supervise it. Oh, okay. I, and I remember the, the head of production, this guy, Charlie Goldstein, he came in because I was, I was giving notes and I, I wouldn't approve something. And he comes in, what the fuck are you doing in here? Where's Chris Carter? You know? um, but uh, 
somehow uh, I stumbled through, and and I rose. I mean, I was I was staff writer, and I was executive producer after three years. Um, which episode or episodes are you are you most proud of, and and why? In terms of the quality that you're talking about, um, every episode that Darren Morgan wrote, uh, most of the episodes Vince Gilligan wrote. Uh, Bad Blood, Pusher, Folio. I mean, Vince, there's just so many amazing ones. Um, Chris Carter, I would say. Um, Dwayne Barry, um, Anasazi, uh, Postmodern Prometheus, Triangle. Uh, most of the ones Morgan Wong wrote, uh, you know, uh, Beyond the Sea, uh, Squeeze, Tombs. Um, I could go on and on. Dehander Verletzt. Um and then for me, my favorite one is actually uh, the most unlikely episode. Uh, it's a mythology episode called Memento Mori. And there's a little story about this which I'd like to tell because it's, it just tells you something about television and why it's a funny business. Um, Darren, who's a lovely guy and who just wrote some of the best episodes but found the whole process of writing television just too painful to bear, <laughs> which, which I understand. Um, he said, I, I can't stand this anymore. He won, he won the Emmy, and, and he said, I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> and, uh, and he did. And, but he said, you know what, I'll write a freelance episode. This was season four. I'll write a freelance episode. Oh, great. Darren's going to write one more. It's going to be amazing. And um, there had been some debate in season four about whether Agent Scully should get cancer. And uh, some of the writers on the staff felt that that was very cheesy and melodramatic and, you know, beneath the show and anyway um darren's script was supposed to come in it was right before christmas it was the last episode we were going to prep before the christmas break and i think it was three days before we had to prep he calls and says i'm really sorry um i don't have the script okay well when, when are you gonna have it well i'm not uh, what do you mean i'm sorry i just i just couldn't do it i couldn't do it i don't, I don't have a script they're like uh-oh <laughs> we have nothing so Agent Scully's getting cancer. <laughs> yeah, I, I swear, this is what happened. And so, so Vince Gilligan, John Scheiben, and I, we spent one day breaking that story. And then the next day, we divided it into thirds. We each wrote a third. Then we stitched it together without even reading what the others had written. And that was our draft. And we prepped that. And then over Christmas... Chris Carter rewrote it so that it made sense. <laughs> and that was our single Emmy nomination for writing. So that's my favorite episode. Was there anything specifically unique about the X-Files writer's room? Um, and ha have you replicated that, you know, in your writer's rooms? Have you veered from it kind of what did you learn from that room and what have you changed once you were the one really fully in charge well i think what i did well uh was i understood the show and i think i understood chris and what he was what he wanted to achieve and so he fairly early on put me in charge of the writer's room and so he'd be rewriting scripts and, and doing other things, and I would lead the writer's room, and then we'd come and present the story to Chris. And he, would, he was a very tough critic, which was great. Mm -hmm. And so it forced you to try very hard and to do your best, which I do um, take with me on every show I do. But I think the other thing about this process that I didn't really appreciate until I left this country and moved to Europe, where they don't have this system, 
is that what it's really saying when you collaborate with other writers is that it's not about you and your ego. It's actually about the show. And that all of us need to work together to make the best show possible. And nobody really cares whether it's your idea or my idea. They just want the best show. And that, I think, we were very good at um, defending <coughs> and pursuing. And, um, and it goes along with what I was saying before about, about doing good work. So um, it was a tough room. I'm sure many people who went through that room, like you know Jeff Bell or Steve Maeda or David Amon, <coughs> would tell you it was a tough room. But um, the other thing I realized during the X-Files that I didn't understand when I first started, again, it was my first job, is that some episodes would be really good, and then some were just me. They were, just, they were stinkers. I mean, they're just like, wow, that was bad. But somehow people liked them anyway. But there were many episodes where I felt like, wow, that is not as good as we can do. And what I slowly came to realize was in the supernatural genre, or science fiction genre, if you have an idea, it's a story worth telling. Which is to say, if you're going to depart from literal reality, if you're going to make up a monster or an alien, there better be a reason. It's got to be about something, right? A monster is, is an exaggeration of us. And you're trying to make a point. Because you, you, you couldn't do it with a real person, but you can do it with a monster. And what you're saying, though, is true about us. It becomes obvious when you turn it into a monster. And the really good episodes of The X-Files, every single one, whether the writers understood it consciously or not, and I'm not saying that they did always understand it consciously, it was motivated by a really interesting idea. And once I understood that, which I would say was probably around season four, the job became much more interesting to me because I started to really appreciate why we were telling the stories. Uh, and I don't always understand why I'm telling a story, but when I do, it's a great tool. It's very, very helpful to figure out which decisions you should make narratively or for the character. Not that I'm trying to, to lecture, you know, like uh, make a speech through my storytelling. I'm trying to ask interesting questions. And if I understand that what that question is and why it's interesting, I'm much more likely to be successful in the, in the writing of it. I know when, when we're... we're We'll segue over to Man in the High Castle in a few minutes, but which has a lot of mythology and a lot of rules and different, you know, I mean, there's, I don't know how you keep all of that straight. I don't either. Very challenging. <laughs> On X-Files, were there rules? Was, you know, back, I remember back when I first started, a series Bible at the time was more of an internal document within the show that kind of told you what you'd already done, you know, what the characters had been through, who had cancer, who didn't, you know, and different rules. And I, were there specific rules on, on the X-Files of things like, you know, you can't show something specific. It has, you know, it has to be oblique references. Things, everything on the show was in the gray area, you know, where you, nothing was quite definitive for a long, long time. Uh, there weren't rules, but I think there were convictions um, that Chris had and that, you know, every rule is made to be broken. And we certainly ended up breaking many, many of those rules over time. But I think, it, you know, it's a, only as scary as it is real. That was one of our big rules. And that's why X-Files tended to take place in ordinary towns. There were very few episodes that were in big cities and why the cast tended to be people like that look like you and me and not, you know, exceptionally beautiful, glamorous people because we wanted it to seem real. We wanted it to seem like this is actually happening. And the more grounded it seemed, the more likely you were like, oh, God, it, you know, it, can I go to sleep at night? Can, you know, do I need to lock my doors? Which is, of course, you know, what, what we're trying to achieve. Um, and the less you see, the better. The more it's in your mind, the better. Um, things like that. Um, 
but Chris, interestingly, refused to write a Bible. And he was asked many times, and he wouldn't do it, because he said, I don't, if, if there's a Bible, then the writers that come on the show will just read the Bible. They won't watch all the episodes. That's true. And he just w- wanted to make them watch all the episodes. Um, I don't think they did watch all the episodes anyway. And I think that's why there are some errors. I mean, uh, continuity errors. You know, if you're a close fan of the show, you'll see there are a few things every once in a while we'd forget <laughs> that we'd done something. It wasn't particularly um, uh, dotting every I or crossing every T. But um, he was mindful of not repeating himself. And um, obviously when you do 202 hours and nine seasons, that's quite a challenge. Okay. This concludes the Proud Mary portion of uh, about the X-Files. You still awake out there? You're still awake. <laughs> However, when we open up for Q&A in the last half hour, if you have X-Files questions, we're, we can certainly return to that. I want to just touch briefly on a few, a few of the other projects um, before Man in the High Castle. If one project um, is, was called uh, Robbery Homicide Division, um, and you work with Michael Mann. And I just wondered if you could um, talk about maybe, or, or not, uh, <laughs> what you learned from that experience. And when I started to look into that, um, I also realized that you directed two episodes of, of The X-Files, and then you didn't direct again. Yeah. And I wondered why. And if, you know... Oh, I would love to direct. I, I, that's the best job. Sorry. It's better. It's much more fun being a director than being a writer. Loved, loved, loved it. Every second of the day just flies by. Oh, my gosh, the day's over already. When do I get to go again? I mean, you can see why directors are addicted to directing. Fantastic. I would do it in a second. The problem is you can't really write and produce and direct at the same time. It's very, very tough. And so if you notice, the only reason I directed was because The X-Files was coming to an end, or so we thought, at season eight. And David Duchovny said to me, if you don't, you'll regret it forever. He said, make the time to do it before it's too late. So I directed, it was almost the last episode of the season. It was like two or three away from the last episode of the season. Loved it. We did come back for season nine. And so I directed one at the beginning of the season. But if you're writing and producing, that's, you have to do it either at the very end or the very beginning. It's hard to do it anywhere else. But I've just never had the time to do it again. I've never been on a show where I could excuse myself for three weeks to go direct. Um, so... Going from X-Files, which was very much a writer-producer show, to Robbery Homicide Division, which was Michael Mann, who is, you know, a visionary director, was an incredible culture shock. I mean, it could not be more different in every way from the experience I had before. Um, It was tough. Uh, I can't say I particularly enjoyed the experience, um, but I learned an enormous amount. I mean, he's... He's an incredibly um, sensitive filmmaker, very, very visual. And that, you know, that drove a lot. And w- one of the really interesting things he did is he worked with this guy, this Italian guy, who was an art photographer, who would drive around Los Angeles just taking amazing photographs. He would find things, amazing photographs. And then Michael would call us into his office, and the table would have all these, I want you to write stories that involve these images. <laughs> really interesting. And, and, and great, and a great challenge. And, and that's why, you know, I think, it's one of the reasons why his films are so incredibly striking. Um, but he was, he was very sensitive to everything. You know, that was the first show to be shot using high-definition video cameras. It was the first one. And it was startling. It's hard to remember now, but, like, you know, when you film night with film, you don't really see the night, right? You cannot light 
the sky to see the night. And that was the first time you'd look up and you could see the clouds, you know, in Koreatown, or or you could see this dog that you know running across the street in the distance. And it was it was so exciting to me to be exposed to a filmmaker who was so visual. Um, so I I do think about that experience a lot. I I, I didn't enjoy it because I didn't feel. Um, I didn't feel the writing came first, uh, or or the writing was even valued to the degree the visuals were valued. But um, but it's influenced me for sure. And and I think if you look at my work since then, um, you'll see the influence that had on me. I mean, all, straight through Man in the High Castle. I think I'm I, I really try to be very visually aware. Um, do you want to touch on Millennium and? the most salient lessons you may have learned from that experience? Well, Millennium, actually, the Millennium Pilot, if you've never seen it, I, that's my favorite piece of writing that Chris Carter ever did. I think that's the best. It's, I, I like that better even than his X-Files, which is saying a lot. Um, it's so powerful, and he's trying to say something really true about the darkness in the world that we don't want to see. Um, and, and he's got this family he's trying to protect in this yellow house, but he sees the darkness in the world. And I was very moved by it. It was dark. It was so dark. Now, I'm dark too. So <laughs> I totally connected with it, and I loved doing the show. But the network, all they ever said to us was, Jesus, you know, can't you lighten this up? <laughs> you know, can't there be some jokes? You know, it's like, well, we got people with their lips sewn shut and buried alive. It's not very funny. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I think it, it was a tough sell. Uh, I, but to this day, I meet people who liked X-Files and loved Millennium because it was uh, uncompromising. And then we get to Harsh Realm and The Lone Gunman after that. Any, how, was, how were those experiences? Well, I think a part of my heart is still broken over The Lone Gunman cancellation. It's funny, though, before it came on, I think it was... Um, uh, is it King of the Hill? Was that the, the animated show? Uh, there was a T-shirt saying, you know, um, renew, uh, bring back the lone gunman. Before, before it was broadcast. So they knew something we didn't know. But the truth is we'd wanted to do it for years, but uh, other shows like Millennium and Harsh Realm delayed doing that show. And then by the time we did it, aside from the fact they were somewhat unconventional leads, I just think the the wave of the X-Files had already crested and it was just too late. But we loved doing that show. John and Vince and I loved it and, and really hoped it would last. I look back on that period of television, I think the networks didn't realize that you know, that was the beginning of the decline of their audience. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of shows in that Friday night slot that they kept canceling thinking they would do better and none of them did. It just kept going down and down and down. So um, I had great affection for that. Harsh Realm was a really tough show, a really interesting show. But they just they hated that too. I mean, the, the guy who was the head of the network is like, I don't get this show. Didn't promote it. Canceled it right away. Um, so that's the way it goes. It's interesting. I was at another Writers Guild event several months ago where Sam Ismail was there talking about Mr. Robot. Same experience. The only difference is uh, UCP, the, the executives, they just in the USA, they just didn't get the show. Yeah. But the assistants, Sam was saying, loved the show so much that they rallied went to their bosses and said, you wow. have to do this show. And they kind of just said, all right, whatever. And they had very little expectations. Sam never ran a show, got to run the show, started directing, you know. So sometimes it works in your favor, but also, um, you know, in that particular instance, 
the, they actually listened. That's you know? a very happy um, story. Yes. And so what, I, I like it that story. It is a happy show. <laughs> and it's a show about paranoia and yeah. conspiracy. No, I like that show. Um, it it's right up me. your alley. Yeah. Um, okay, so <clears throat> then you moved transatlantic. Um, and now, am I correct to say that Big Light Productions, which is your company that, yeah. based in the UK, um, and it's a transatlantic production model with co-productions? How, how would yes. you describe that? And was Night Stalker the first of those? No, well, so, so this is what's confusing is my loan out here in California was Big Light Productions. Yes. And then two and a half years ago, I founded a company in London, and very imaginatively, I also called that Big Light Productions. <laughs> okay, so it's not the cold medicine. So it's, yeah. it's not the same. So, yeah, Night Stalker I did for ABC here. Okay, yes. And then I did um, Hunted in the U.K., mm-hmm. uh, and then strike back, uh, right? uh, yeah, strike back, yeah, exactly. So I, yeah, I've done quite a lot in, in Europe now because I've been there almost six years. Um, so, well, what motivated the move? Um, I know when I mean some of this we talked about, but I think it'd be interesting to the audience. Um, you talked about the production model and how you can own the un- underlying rights by doing content in the UK, and just wondering how that experience has been for you because you know you had so, choices and you made that choice. I. As, as I told you, I, I lived in Europe before. I loved being in, in Europe. And there were these British producers, I think starting in 2002 or something, they, they would come every year and say, would you ever do a show in London? I go, oh, yes, I would love to do a show in London, but I don't see how that's ever going to happen. And then, as everyone in this room knows, we had the writer's strike in 2008. And uh, after the writer's strike, the studios decided that they were going to punish all the writers for having struck and suddenly, you know, fees I was getting, uh, they were offering me half what I used to get. I'm like, this sucks. And the British producers had said to me, um, you know, if you come to the UK, you keep your copyright. And I started thinking, you know what, rather than taking a big pay cut, maybe this is the time to go live in Europe and see what that's like. I'll make a little less money up front, but if I have a hit, I'm going to truly own my show or, or co-own my show with these producers and by the way the accounting is not Hollywood accounting it's like real you see the books you can actually that sounds pretty good so I wrote this show Hunted which was a British spy drama with the express intention of hoping to sell it to a British broadcaster and back to America you know sometimes you think British show Americans won't watch it but I figured we're used to British spies Mm-hmm. There's one very famous one I, mm-hmm. I know. Uh, and it worked. Amazingly, it worked. It sold it to the BBC and, and sold it. Well, there's this longer story about that. But anyway, I sold it to the BBC and then ultimately to HBO Cinemax. Um, the show only went one year. I'd been there for two years at that point, And my family didn't want to leave. And I didn't really want to leave either. But I was thinking, how am I going to make a living here? Because they don't have writer-producers and... You know, it's you could wait months and months and months and be unemployed. It's a, it's it's tough. You know, it's it's much easier to be a writer here. Um, and it took me about a year to figure out that what I needed to do was start my own company mm-hmm. to employ myself and others, and that that's how I could actually make this work. And as it happens, there is a huge number of young writers and producers in Europe who love American television, who are desperate to work the way we work, but mm-hmm. don't have the opportunity. And I thought, here's a chance to give these people an opportunity to tell these stories and to tell them in their own voice from a European perspective. 
And that's kind of exciting. I'm old enough now where that's very exciting to me. Um, and the thing that you realize when you leave America, it's hard to appreciate it living here. We make some of the best television in the world, undoubtedly, and we sell it all over the world. And everybody watches our TV and loves our TV. But until the last five years, we didn't buy anybody else's. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Unless it was a PBS masterpiece theater, we wouldn't buy it. And so what does that mean culturally for us as Americans? Is We don't hear anybody else's voices except for our own. And so I thought, you know, if you can make really good, high-quality dramas with British voices and French voices and Italian voices, you're going to have a conversation between – and that's good for them and it's good for us. And I'm very happy to be Absolutely. a part of that. And so that's what I've been doing uh, for the last two and a half years and as it happens, I lucked out because I came to Europe just as this co-production boom. And it is an unbelievable uh, explosion of work because, as you all know, there's so many uh, broadcasters in the U.S. who want drama, original drama, but can't afford to spend $3 million or $4 million an hour on a drama. Mm -hmm. So what they need to do is partner with another broadcaster in another country or two other broadcasters. It's a bargain. So if you're an American in Europe who knows how to run a writer's room, you can imagine, I mean, the work that is offered to me is, you know, I turned yeah. down 90 plus percent of it. There's more than you could ever hope to do. And I sometimes wonder why aren't more Americans coming over here? Because um, the opportunities are, are enormous, but it does require a certain um, temperament to deal with being in a foreign country. And yeah, Marta, who came over to edit Medici, is laughing. Um, <laughs> she was in Rome for five months or whatever. Um, you, you do have to be humble and, and deal with cultural differences. Um, but if you have the right temperament for it, it's very rewarding. Okay, so now I want to talk about Man in the High Castle. Um, how did you come to this long, gestated project? And I know you read the the novel in high school, I guess, I was reading. How did it come to you? I, I know it had a lot of stops and starts over the years. So I have known David Zucker, who's the head of Scott Free's television arm in Los Angeles for a long time. And I'd, I'd written another pilot for him that didn't go. And he would come to London, and he, we would always have lunch. And one day he said, you know, I've been trying to make Man in the High Castle for years. We just struck out at the BBC. Now Sci-Fi wants to, to try. Would you take a crack at it? And Hunted had just been canceled. And I said, yeah, sure. I love that book. I read it in college. I love that. Great. Sci-fi was great. We made the deal. I'm going to read this book again. And then I read it again. And I go, oh, my God. <laughs> what have I done? I don't know if you've read the book. I mean, it's a great book. It's a great book. And I, and I genuinely love the book. But it is not a television series. I was like, what am I going to do? And, and I didn't want to be one of those writers who ignores, you know, and it's Philip K. Dick, and it's considered his classic, and I wanted to be respectful, but I, I, I was, there was a few weeks when I absolutely was just stumped. And I said, well, David, can I see some of the other versions of the script that you, you wrote? And I read these other drafts, good writers who would completely ignored the book, completely. There was nothing to do with the book. And I realized, okay, I'm not going to make exactly what the book is. I'm going to, and so what I did was I thought, what's this book about? What's he trying to say? What are the central ideas in this book? And now how can I do a TV narrative that is true to his ideas? Because his ideas are mind-blowing and difficult and complex and what, they're what makes the book great. 
and and I took a lot of the characters, I added characters, but I was very deliberate and conscious of why I was changing everything and just praying that people wouldn't hate me for the changes. And one of the producers is Philip K. Dick's daughter, Issa. Yeah. And so, of course, I was most nervous about her reading the script. But I think, I mean, first of all, she, she really, she loved it. And I think part of what helped me was that they had been trying to make it for so long, and she'd read so many versions of it that didn't work, that I think she was in a, you know, a place to, to accept a version of it that was not exactly what the book was. Um, and so it was really warmly received by Scott Free, and Sci-Fi did not make it. And it sat around for nearly two years, and they were about to lose the option on the book when I got a call from this executive who used to be at ABC who had just joined Amazon, Morgan Wandell. Mm -hmm. And he said, I've just joined Amazon. We're looking for like really, you know, big projects. Things will make a difference. Do you have anything that hasn't been made that you really like? I go, yeah, I do. And amazingly, amazingly, he read it. He liked it. And it was, it was rescued from, you know, oblivion. How did you map out I mean, there's so much complexity to it. There's three different worlds, and there's you know different languages, and I'm just and there's many pieces to this question. One is knowing it was going to be Amazon, and after the you know pilot process that they do their you know testing with their on their retail site, you know where you can vote. Um, you made the choice to have it be contiguous, so each episode ends, and then the next one's a direct pickup. So it's like a ten-hour movie. Yeah. Um, did you structure it like a ten-hour movie, and did you make any? Um, um, I don't want to say concessions because I, I, I don't think that's a positive. Which, and I think it's it's wonderful show. Did you knowing it was going to be probably binge viewed? Mm -hmm. Did that change how you broke story and how you told story? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, I was very aware that there would be a lot of people who would watch it in a day or a weekend or a week and that that changes your strategy. You know, when you do episodic television and there's a week between episodes, there's a lot of repeating. And here's the same thing again, but but different. And and if you were to do that in a streaming environment, it would be really irritating. It's like, oh, my God, I just saw this. Tim, what are you doing this for? And so it, it felt to me like it, it is much more like a novelistic narrative. And so uh, in season two, which we just started last Thursday, right. it's nothing like season one. You know, it's, it is not, it's not the form that we know for TV. It's like, it's like a novel where, yes, the characters' emotional lives absolutely are continuing, but the narrative is not a repeat. Hmm. You've got to keep going forward and be a bit fearless. And it's a huge, huge canvas. I can't imagine it. You've got the whole world to tell stories in, right? The whole mm -hmm. world. Um, and we just barely got, you know, a, a glimpse of it in season one. I think a big part of what really helped me in writing that show was having been in Europe, <clears throat> because I'm an American expatriate, and I see my country from a distance, and and I see how people see me as an American, and I'm also somebody who spent a lot of time in Germany because I've been teaching at a film school mm -hmm. there for the last uh, three years now, and. I'm one of those people, when I first went to Germany, I was like, you know, this is where the Nazis were. This is where the Nazis were. Every place I went. Was he a Nazi? Was he a Nazi? You know? Um, and now I've been there so many times, and you're like, you know, most of these people were not close to even being born when all of this stuff happened. They're people in their 20s or 30s. This is, you know, distant history. And they live with it every day. And... 
I mean, I can't tell you how many people, um, you know, you, you have a drink and they bring it up. Mm. And tears come to their eyes. The, the, the trauma of having that as their heritage. Um, and these are lovely people. And I started thinking about British colonial rule or the way the Native Americans were treated, or, which is not to suggest an equivalency in any way. Right? The crimes of the Nazis are extraordinary and unique and horrendous. However, they don't have a monopoly on fascism and brutality and cruelty. Unfortunately, it's something that is in our DNA. It's something that all of us are capable of, and it's not specifically German. Nazism was specifically German because it took place in Germany. But I think what a lot of us tend to do is, especially when you watch movies about Nazis, oh, it's those guys with the German accents. They're the bad ones. We're okay. We're the good guys. We're the good. It doesn't matter what we've done. We get to say we're the good guys. All of us, just like those poor German kids, are in tears about who their great-grandfathers were. We walk around very proud about who our great-grandfathers were. And it seems to me that every generation has to earn that right. It, you know, you don't get to ride on the coattails of the people that came before you. You know, America's an idea. And it's up to each generation to live up to that idea. And, and to the degree this is a great country, it's the degree to which we honor what it's supposed to be about. And as you can tell, I feel this mm -hmm. deeply because I feel like I've, I've lived it. And that's what I'm trying to say in this show. And so it, it, the show kind of, it twists your head around, like, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Because, and what would you do if you were in that situation? You know, most of us would not be in the resistance. I got news for you, you know. Most of us, the vast majority of us, would keep our heads down. And we'd, be, we'd try to stay safe and take care of our families and, and, you know, protect our homes. And I'm not saying that with any judgment. That's just what it is to be human. And so... There's a lot that I, I felt deeply that I wanted to say in the show, and to the degree the show was any good, I think it's because I really knew what I wanted to say. Would you say that um, Frank, Frank is sort of the closest to your point of view? Yes. And, and, and I, the thing about Frank, which is like me, my father was sort of an atheist Jew. <laughs> He's, he was raised Jewish, but sort of so strictly that he just turned against not just Judaism but all religion. He's, he's 92 and still is like, there is no God. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, and, um, and my mother was Christian, so I'm, I'm you know, mixed, um, mixed religious background. And the thing that struck me about the, one of the horrors, one of the many, many horrors of Nazism is that um, you don't decide whether you're a Jew or not. They tell you you're a Jew. So, like, if I was in Nazi Germany, they'd say, well, Frank, you're a Jew. You're coming up. But I don't believe. It doesn't matter. We tell you you're a Jew. And so the Frank Frank character to me, it's like he's a non-practicing Jew, but no, you're still a Jew. We still get to kill you. And it's, it's that – it's depriving people of their humanity, of, of their indivi individuality. Um, again, no culture has a monopoly on that. And that's an, it's an impulse, I think, that is unfortunately universal. So to me, Frank is like – Frank is the closest appropriately to me, Frank, in the show. Um, I want to, just in terms of craft and how you structured the series, because it's, it's a very free adaptation, as, as you've acknowledged. Um, one of them, I think, is pretty obvious, and we talked about it in, in the book, which is The Grasshopper Lies Heavy was actually a book in the yes. Philip K. Dick novel, and you made it newsreels yes. because they're visual, right? That's 
Absolutely. Um, wondering about some of the other ones. So, because Juliana's sister, for example, Trudy, is not in the book. Right. Um, and you added two new antagonists who are, for me, two of the most interesting characters. I mean, there's many, but Chief Inspector Keto, Keto mm-hmm. and now I hope I can say this right. I practiced all day. <laughs> Ubergruppenführer. Pretty good. John Smith, yep. who's uh, Rufus Sewell is just amazing. You added those two antagonists. So I'm just wondering strategically as a, as a writer, storyteller, where did those come from? So adding Trudy and adding those two antagonists. Well, I knew that Juliana was my heroine and that I wanted her to be on a quest to understand the meaning of these films. But I felt there needed to be a personal connection to these films. And so, you know, very much like Agent Mulder is looking for the aliens because his sister was abducted by them, um, Juliana is looking for the meaning of these films because they cost her sister her life. So I I needed that personal, emotional reason why she's connected to this quest, and that's why I've invented the sister. And then there simply were no antagonists in the book. And I knew I needed antagonists, and so I needed them on the Japanese side, which is why I invented Chief Inspector Kido. And then I needed on the Nazi side, not just because I needed an antagonist, but because the book doesn't take place in New York. So I knew audiences in America would be even more interested in the Nazi side of the story than the Japanese side of the story. And I needed a character who could anchor that part of the narrative. And um, very true to the, the themes I've just been discussing with you, you know, I thought you know, this guy could be lovely to his wife and children, but he's just intellectualized why it's okay to embrace a hateful ideology. And I believe that's what happens. You know, I believe there are certain politicians in this country who I am repelled by who would be lovely to have a beer with. You know, they would just be really pleasant company, but they could be monsters in what they do in their jobs. And I think that's true. I think it's one of the mistakes, you know, we make as voters is thinking, oh, yeah, I'd love to have a beer with him. That doesn't mean he's going to be a good leader. So, you know, and, and once you do that, you're forced to see the humanity of people that we otherwise just dismiss as monsters and cartoon characters. And I think that's why, you know, Rufus is a brilliant mm-hmm. actor, but it's also an idea, a character that challenges your preconceptions. I mean, he's, he's a sympathetic Nazi, so yeah. you don't see that very often. Um. The love triangle. Uh, in the book, Juliana and Frank are already split up. Yeah. And on the series, they're still together. Right. And this is because he's part of the love triangle. Joe in the book is Joe... Sinadella. Sinadella. Yeah. Italian. Yeah. And he's very, you know, almost cornfed Midwestern Joe Blake in the TV series. And where did those um, changes come from? Well, I, I felt like... Julian and Frank's relationship shouldn't be over so because then what does it matter? I've never seen that relationship. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's like an abstraction, something that happened in the past. So I, I rewound the state of that relationship so they're still together at the beginning of the series. And then I wanted to feel like that's something that's at stake. That's something that could be lost. And I want to care about that relationship. And then I thought, well, Joe is the threat to that relationship, love triangle. Um, and I wanted Joe to seem to be all-American, square-jawed, he's the hero. I mean, we begin with him, not with her, right? And if you've watched the pilot, I'm going to spoil it for you, but um, 
so you're, you're like, well, he's the hero. He's Joe Blake, and he's a handsome guy. He has better hair than the other guy. Yeah, he's better hair than the other guy. That's how you know. Yeah. But then at the end, of course, he's a Nazi. And I just, it was part of my strategy to mislead you about who he was. And the interesting thing about his character is you don't know, you still don't know after 10 episodes, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? He's always on that line. And, um, yeah, we, I, mean, I don't want to spoil it, yeah. but there, there's some kind of redemption thing that happens at some point. That's all I'll say. If you haven't, how many people have seen all 10 episodes? Just so. Wow. Okay. Okay. That's um, a lot of Amazon Prime memberships. <laughs> now, in the novel, The Antiques Dealer, Bob Childen, or Childen, Childen. Um, he's much more prominent. And in the series, he's very peripheral. Um, and I'm, I'm also wondering about that. Uh, he's one of my favorite characters. And, great uh, actor, great cast. Great actor. Yeah. And, uh, and he's funny. Uh, but his... His, what he represents in the world and the storyline that he introduces was not urgent. There were other things that I needed to do first. So I always intended to have him be in the series, but I waited till episode seven. And he's actually almost exactly the character he's in the book. He's probably the most faithful. Yeah. Um, actually, a lot of the dialogue in that first scene he has at the Japanese couple's house is drawn directly from the book. Um, but he continues now in ser- season two. He's, he's a series regular going forward. So I just I took my time getting to that part. Um. I want to come back to – was it Paul and Betty? Yeah. The couple. I want to come back to that scene in a minute because that's when I talk about what makes a great scene. And I keep glancing around because Chris Karchi is supposed to tell me – hold up cards about time. And I just want to make sure they give, they give me, like, warnings. And Oh, I just want to – how are we doing with time? Oh, uh, keep going. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I told them that before, what they do in the Writers Guild Foundation is they hold up these little cards that are very gentle and say, like, 15 minutes or 30 minutes. And I did a book event where I had a friend, and I said, please signal to me when I'm, you know, running, if I'm running really long, because I often lose track of the time. And I was rambling about Tina Turner or something. And, um, <laughs> and I decided, oh, I should probably look over. And I look over at my friend, and he's going like this. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So... You have what I would call a couple of emotional touchstones in the series. Juliana's heart necklace and the sketch of Juliana that Frank made. Um, and they, these appear throughout in these sort of coincidental situations. And I was watching it with somebody who said, well, that's such a coincidence. How would that, you know, how would that portrait just be sitting there on the bridge? And I said, well, because you have to know the book and the whole story because it involves the itching and destiny and fate. And it's, it's, it's supposed to be. But nor, so I'm curious, you know, as storytellers and particularly screenwriters, you know, coincidence, coincidence is a big thing that there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of people have different opinions about it. David Kapp, who's a very successful screenwriter, says coincidence is okay as long as it makes the problem worse. Yes, that's exactly um, right. If it solves a problem, it feels weak. But, um, but because you're dealing with mysticism and there's this whole other layer of reality, I'm just wondering how, how you dealt with that and... Was that a consideration that, you know, you were worried about? You're, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I, I, and that's exactly my rule, is that if a coincidence makes things worse for your protagonist, it's fine. If it makes things better, you cannot do it. And so every coincidence in Man Like Castle is like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. That's not good. <laughs> um, but also what you said is absolutely true, that the, the novel and the TV series are very much about fate versus destiny, chance, the butterfly effect, the interconnectedness of things. 
And that's, you know, to me, the novel is about, there are two themes that the novel had that I wanted to represent. One was, um, how do you hold on to your humanity in the face of inhumanity? Uh, I think, that's, you know, with what's going on in the world right now, that's a really relevant theme. And how do you do it? How do you fight back? You know, uh, you know, Gandhi and Martin Luther King are two of the greatest men who ever lived. But, you know, if they were up against Hitler, you know, you, know, you could shame the British into leaving India. You could shame Americans into desegregating. But you couldn't shame Hitler, right? So what's your response? How do you respond? That's the question that I wanted to ask and that's asked in the book. And then the other one is what's reality? What is all of this? Is this real? That's a really hard concept to grasp, period, let alone dramatize in a television series. And yet I'm trying to do that. And it will become increasingly obvious as the show goes on how I'm trying to do that. And the films are a part of it. And that necklace is a part of it. Um, and the other thing that I'm mindful of with that storyline is I don't want the science fiction to eclipse the human drama. And it could so easily hmm. do that. And I'm always pulling back on the science fiction to make sure the characters stay at the front of the story. And then the third theme that I don't think was in the book, but that was important to me, was what does it mean to be free? What is freedom? And people have different ideas of what freedom is. I, I remember um, doing research in Germany, and I went to the Stasi prison, which is a horrible, horrible place. Uh, it, it was one type of prison until 1962, where it was like you know, dungeons where they would torture people, literally. And then from 1962 on, they got rid of those, and it was, like, scientific, and it was even worse because they figured out how to make people confess. They so terrorized them that without beating them, they confessed right away, whether they committed the crime or not. Um, but I toured this with this Berlin film commissioner, and then after it was over, she said to me, you know, um, I grew up in East Germany, and this is horrible. I didn't know any of this was happening. But to be honest with you, I still miss it. I was like, wow, you miss East Germany. She goes, well, you knew everybody. You felt safe. There was always bread on the shelves. You knew what the bread was going to cost. There weren't seven types of ketchup. There were two, but who needs seven types of ketchup? I felt safe. I felt free. Now, that's like, whoa, what are you talking about? <laughs> Nothing could be less free than East Germany. But it just it made me see, some, see things in a different way, and I was eager to capture it, especially with the John Smith character in the series. Have you happened to see the series Rectify? I have not. Because um, it also deals with it's somebody who's incarcerated for almost 20 years, and he, and he gets released on forensic DNA evidence. But his, his world inside this death row cell block in a way he feels he felt freer there but anyway just it's interesting a, just an aside um and then a terrible segue do you believe in multiverses um do you and do you need to and do you need to to be able to write well you asked me earlier and i didn't answer do i believe in conspiracy theories and i do not uh and multiverses i don't know um but in a way it kind of doesn't matter the question makes you think about things. Um, and I would say my belief is – what Philip K. Dick is saying to me is this is not what matters. This is not what matters. We're animals, so we think this is what matters. But what matters is what's in here and what's in here. That's reality. And we're all mistaken thinking it's about how much stuff you have, you know, uh, how much prestige you have – or 
even thinking how long you live is what matters. That's not what it's about. It's about your heart and do you have love in your heart. It's about how you live your life, not how long your life lives or how much money you make or any of those other things. That's what reality is. And that's like, what? Mm -hmm. For most people, that's such a radical thought. So um, I don't know if there's multiverses or not, but if there aren't, there should be. One of the things I realized in my research was the K and Philip K. Dick. You know what his middle name is? Was um, Kindred. Interesting, right? Um, now, Jane Anderson, wonderful playwright and screenwriter who most recently wrote Olive Kittredge for HBO, theme is very, very important to her. And one of the things she said is that if, when I'm doing it right, the DNA of theme will be contained in every scene. And I wonder if you believe that or if you're approaching it, you know, you have these thematic questions that you were just telling us for the whole, you know, for the series. Um, does each episode have to have a theme? The, the titles of the episodes, do they connect to theme? What is your relationship to theme when you're breaking story and telling story? You know, I, I'm, I don't believe in rules. And I, I think however you write or however you tell stories, if it's a good story, then obviously that's the right way to write or to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And I can't, I, I, as, as I think I said it, if I can figure out my theme, it's really helpful. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say in this. That really helps me understand how I should organize the story. That's what I'm, the question I'm asking. But I often don't know. I often just know this feels right. Intuitively, no, no, no. I, you know, and in a writer's room, too, you'll often be questioned by writers, and they'll say, what about this? And you go, no, no, no. And you don't know why. And that's part of the good process about being in a room is that it forces you to externalize why you don't think it's right. And the funny thing is sometimes it happens like, oh, no, that's all wrong. That's all wrong. And then if they change it like two degrees, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, it's because it's such a specific thing that you're trying to find. It's very much a, it's an emotional thing first, I think. And then it's an intellectual thing. And I think we tend to overrate the intellectual. <laughs> I think, I think, you know, life is this. Mm-hmm. Life is huge. And, and our, our brains are like this. You know, we, we can't really take all of it in intellectually. And it's a mistake to think, to think so. When I'd interviewed John Fusco, who did uh, Marco Polo for Netflix, he said, for the viewer, theme is subliminal. For the writer, it's instinctual. And I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, we need to save time for Q&A. Just so I know, do people have questions for Frank? And Okay, so we'll do that. And then um, I had one other quick one on the subject of theme. And then we will definitely get to all the questions. Um, in the season finale, Hitler utters a theme, which is fate is fluid, destiny is controlled by men. Was that in the book? No, because that scene isn't even in the book. Did that come from you? And then Hitler puts his own little spin on it, which is a few men, you know, which really mirrors so much of what's going on with the 1% of the 1% now and the way our world is functioning. And I'm just wondering what that means to you, that statement, and... um, do you further believe in what Hitler added to that, his spin on it? Um, no, I, be- I believe fate is fluid and destiny is in the hands of men. And uh, that came from me because I, I, I know somebody who's, who claims to be a psychic. And she, she has clients and she reads the f- their futures and she records it on cassette tapes and gives it to them. And I said, well, what if what you said in that cassette tape isn't what happens? And she said, well... When I tell somebody's future, that's their future at that moment. Right? But then they do something and it changes. 
I said, well, that's very convenient for you, isn't it? <laughs> but it just, that fascinated me, the idea that your future is always changing, and that fate is not set. Destiny is up to you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. And I, and I think related to this, somehow this makes sense to say this right now, I think the times in my life or in all of our lives where you feel depressed or when you feel like there's nothing you can do. Mm -hmm. I think depression stems from helplessness. And, and then when you get yourself out of a depression, it's because I can do this. Be ah, even, if not, even if it's not going to work, even if it's not going to mm -hmm. make it any better, it's like there's something I can do. I feel better. And I think that's connected to the idea of destiny is in your hands, the sense that, that you... You know, you are subject to, to random forces. I, I think that's the most terrifying thing in life is the randomness of it. But within those parameters, you have a lot of control about how you conduct yourself. Um, and that, again, is very much part of this show, is uh, in this terrible world, how you respond, how you hold on to your humanity. Okay. Questions? You were first. Uh, wait for the mic, please. Oh. Wait for the mic. Oh, yeah, she was over there. Hi, I wanted to ask about your approach to world building, both um, creatively and logistically. For instance, um, how do you come up with and then edit the rules of your world, and what system, either digital or analog, do you use to keep track of it all? Uh, well, the first thing I did with Man in the High Castle was I called a bunch of historians because I knew Philip K. Dick had written that in 1962, and that was his understanding of the Nazis and the Japanese at that point. And I wanted to take advantage of 40-plus more years to what do they think now. And so they told me a lot about what Nazi values were and what the Nazi society would have looked like. And so it would have been agricultural, industrial, state-controlled, not corporate-controlled. And hard work would have been the value and, and family and all these things. And so the Times Square... The, the original concept art for Times Square, not the guy that's our production designer, but when, when they're trying to sell the show, they got this concept art done. And it was Times Square with hot dogs and beer. And it's like, that's not the point. It's not, oh, no, we're going to have German food. That, you know, that's not the point. <laughs> the, the, the point is their values would have been different than our values. And that's what's unsettling about it. And on, on the Japanese side, what they told me was, gosh, if this had happened, the Japanese would have had a hard time because they're a tiny island nation of 100 million people. How would they have kept up with the, the Nazis? So they'd be losing the Cold War. So therefore, San Francisco should be not quite so uh, well-structured, not so well-maintained. They can't quite control things as well as the Nazis can. And that informed a lot of the production design. And then... I, going back to my sort of X-Files thing of it's only as scary as it seems real is I wanted it to feel almost like our 1962 because you have to recognize you have to go oh yeah this is 1962 oh it's not it's slightly different so I tried to make it as close as our 62 as I could so you'd feel like it was the past but off and then I relied honestly on the production designer and the costume designer and the props department and they have I can't even tell you the research they've done you know, everything about, you know, postage boxes and uniforms and cars and everything has been thought through. I mean, you could argue with the choices, but I guarantee you, you know, there's a rationale between 
every single decision, and it's thousands of decisions, um, to create this world. And it did feel like, it felt like, you know, what George Lucas must have felt like at the beginning of Star Wars. You know, I've got to define everything, and I've got to live with these decisions the rest of the, the series, however long it goes. So um, in season two, there's a huge more world building we're doing. And um, it's fun, though. It's fun. But it, it, it is about wh- what are we saying with these decisions? How does it, what does it say about my story and my world? It's not arbitrary. Uh, you want, why don't you pick? Oh, anybody. Who wants to talk next? Um, <laughs> let the mic people pick. Um, all right. How about right here? I can't even hear. Um, what are there any projects you've had in the past that maybe were ahead of their time as far as where television was then that maybe you would consider bringing forward to television as it is now? Yes. Okay. Tell us about it, please. There's a pilot I wrote with Vince Gilligan that I still want to make, and it was actually made, but we weren't uh, we weren't really producing it. It was made in 2005 for Spike and never broadcast. And I still think that would be a great show. That's the one that I, that I, I still would like to do. Who's next? Back there. Hi. You had mentioned about international companies and co-productions uh, in your presentation, and thank you. This was really excellent. I actually grew up in England. But my question is, which companies and countries are looking forward to working with American writers, and what would you suggest? Thank you. Uh, so... There are the American broadcasters are coming to Europe all the time trying to make co-productions, and these co-productions are desperate for American writers who have the expertise. The problem is that you sometimes get caught up in treaties where they don't allow Americans in. So, like French Canadian co-productions are a big thing, but they they deliberately keep out Americans. However, the UK no problem, and Germany no problem, and Italy, which I just did Medici in Italy, no problem. So. It's about identifying productions that you know or your agents know are going to be made as co-productions in Europe and saying, I'd go, I'd go, and then you can do it. I Before I came to London, I called John Wells, who was head of the Writers Guild, and I said, can we form a committee to study how to make, to make it easier for Writers Guild members to work in, um, in Europe? Uh, because it's not easy. Uh, the Writers Guild contract does not lend itself to European co-productions. And um, he said, yeah, sure. So we formed the Foreign Employment Task Force, which is still going on. And I served on it for a year before I left. And I tried to get the Writers Guild to agree to do a version of the contract that was co-production friendly. And the committee was unanimously for it, but then it got shot down. And the fear was that it would be a rollback. And I understand that fear, but... It, it, that's, the, that's the hard thing. It, it's hard for these... You've got to understand, they don't do the accounting we do there. So it's, it's very hard for them to embrace our system. And so that, that's the one catch, is that a lot of them are afraid to be locked into paying residuals forever in the system that they don't, they're not set up to pay. Um, but there's so many co-productions over there um, that I would target those productions, and, and, and I think you'd find there's an appetite. Karen Mandebach, um, who produces Peaky Blinders, she's also doing this production model, and there's an interview in the book with her. She's also found a way to do it. Um, and just quick, um, 
uh, addendum. I, I, that's how we initially came into contact because I've worked a lot internationally and I was working for Sony Television International and I worked in Spain and in Russia. Um, so you want to talk about working in other countries. I was in Moscow, like, you know, for many, 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 many times, many more times than I would have cared to have been. <laughs> However, um, I've also worked in span- animation with Spanish and American as Spanish American co-productions and animation as some of you may know is it's not it's a gray area with the guild in terms of whether it's covered or not but Chuck Slocum who's the co-executive director of the guild I was able to get my Spanish producers to come into the guild they sat down with Chuck and because of wanting to foster these co-productions, the company became signatory and they made it work because what they don't want us to do is go around the guild or do it in secret. And I found that it was much better to just be above board and say, look, I'm being offered a a, a nice amount of money and it's a good opportunity and yet how can I make this work? And more and more, I I don't know how many writers have become Writers Guild, you know, European writers have become Writers Guild members because of working on these co-productions in Europe. But it's more and more that's happening. So all the studios and networks which are kind of the same thing now, have international divisions, and they're quite prolific. So another way in is to try to get into one of those departments because they have what they call American consultants who they send over. And in some cases, you're just a consultant and you can't write. You're just advising and training writers and helping get writers' rooms open. And in other cases, I became like a co-head writer on a, on a miniseries. And I kept my job was always to make myself um, unneeded, truly, I would say, and they'd say, but of course, we will always need you. And i say, no, no, but if I'm doing my job right, ultimately, you'll be able to take this from there. And so it, that's, there, are, I, there are tons of opportunities. And Germany and France, in particular, are, are the big growth areas at the moment. And one other quick thing, the uh, Minister of Culture from France was just here, and I had lunch with her uh, a couple months ago, even though she's no longer in the job. I guess I'm a jinx. Um, but she, France is now offering a 30% tax credit. They really want to people to, to shoot stuff in France since the attacks. So I think you're going to see a lot more productions going to shoot in beautiful France and less going to Bulgaria and other countries that had offered better tax incentives. Okay, who's next? Oh, yes, right here. Thank you. Hi, I was wondering um, about finding humor in kind of horrific uh, situations, whether it's an alien invasion or a Nazi occupation. And is there ever a place where you draw the line? And one more question. Who gave Scully that giant bucket of chicken in our town? One of the greatest (laughs) visual pieces of humor I've ever seen. That was me. Thank you. Um, you know, I wish I was, I was better at the humor. I, I try because I think humor is a great, it, it relieves the tension and then you feel even more scared. It's, a, it's actually like you need the, the pressure valve to go off sometimes. Um, and I think the hard thing for me is making the humor feel characterful and real and m- making it feel like that's what you would really say in that situation. And sometimes I'm surprised, you know, I'll write a scene where I failed actually to come up with something that's humorous but the the actor gave it something humorous or there's something about it that was slightly humorous and people laugh because they're, they they need it you know they're so tense so i think it's a wonderful tool to to deepen your engagement with the characters um but you know some people are better at it than i am Who else? um yes sir yeah <laughs> a lot of questions uh hi thank you for coming um my name is rudy 
I think that's all we're supposed to do at the beginning. So, right? So how much uh, research are you doing as far as the historical figures in Man in the High Castle that are becoming more prevalent as you move countries? Um, how long, like, did you start that process beforehand? Do you make your script supervisors do it? Do you have research people specifically? That's pretty much it. Uh, yeah, all of the above. Uh, we have um, we have historical consultants uh, on both the Nazi side and the Japanese side. Uh, I do, you know, I'm, I'm constantly going on the internet and looking myself. Um, there were certain things I knew I wanted to hit from the beginning, but now as the show is going to new territory, I'm finding historical figures. And, and some of the stuff, you know, is just absolutely shocking. I had no idea. Um, it's actually a book that just came out, amazing book called Imbeciles. Uh, but it's about eugenics, which they got from us. Incredible book that I, I, I knew nothing about. So anyway, uh, lots, lots and lots, and more than you could ever put in the show. But you A mix, a mix. We, believe it or not, we have to be very careful uh, about the real Nazis. They, they actually have rights uh, in Germany, and this show is shown in Germany. Yeah, you actually, you know, I think in this country you could say whatever you want about somebody, a historical figure, uh, but in Germany they, they have rights, and so we have to be very careful how we depict them. I think we have time for one more question. Is there? Hmm? Sharon, yes, please. You need a microphone. I'm super excited about the new Medici series. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that? Well, I really enjoyed making it because it was shot in Tuscany. <laughs> uh, I'd never done a historical drama before, and the, this Italian company uh, came to me and said, we have a script, we have a green light, but we don't really love it. Will you read the script and tell, you, tell us what you think? I said, oh, I don't really love it either. And they said, what would you do? I said, well, that's, I've never made a historical drama before. And why would I want to watch an historical drama? Why would I care about people who lived 600 years ago? And I didn't really know that much about the Medici family. Um, but as it turns out, you know, they, they're famous for funding the Renaissance. You know, the, the Donatello, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, Botticelli, that's them. Um, almost single-handedly. That's pretty good. Um, but beyond that, um, they were the first bankers to the Pope, or they were famous for being the first bankers to the Pope. And what really interested me was that until then, at least according to my reading of history, if you were born poor, you were gonna, your kids would be poor, and their kids would be poor, and, and so on and so on. There was no social mobility. And if you were lucky enough to be born rich, which almost nobody was, you spent all your time trying to not become poor and <laughs> just say hold on to your wealth. And what happened was when the when the Medici were able to say banking is not a sin, usury is not a sin, they could say, well, you young man, without a bright idea, I will give you the capital you need to sell your leather goods in Siena, or sell your. And suddenly, you could rise above, and there was the beginnings of a middle class. And so, to me, they were. They were good guy bankers. <laughs> you know, what an oxymoron that is now, but um, th that they made possible opportunity where none existed before. So that was like an idea that I thought that is interesting to me as a 21st century person. And then we did one thing, 
I, I sort of I pitched it to them. I said, this to me is going to be sort of like The Godfather, which is probably my favorite American movie of all time, and Amadeus. <laughs> Not bad, if I can make it. But the reason is that the, the, the head of the Medici family, who's played by Dustin Hoffman, died in 1429. Nobody knows how he died or you know, what, what caused the death. But we do know is that people had tried to kill him before. So in our show, <clears throat> we're supposing that, in fact, he was murdered, which could be true. It may not be true. But what that does is from the first episode, there's a murder mystery. So even if you don't care about banking or anything else I've just said, <laughs> there's a really good murder mystery that runs through the entire first season. Then you've got these two sons, Richard Madden and his brother, trying to figure out who killed their father. Um, so it, to me, that's made it, I'd watch that show. We will all watch that show. Um, do we have time for another question? Yeah, sure. You guys have time. Okay. Yes, right here. Um, you want I, to... I don't want to spread my germs. Here, she's right there. Thanks. You'll have to wash your hands. After. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm Anastasia Bache. My question is uh, the transition from being a writer in the room on staff and then becoming a showrunner. And what are maybe some of the surprises that came at you? And um, what uh, tips or information would you offer to young showrunners that want to step from one level to the next? So first I have to say the word showrunner I'm not a fan of. I don't really believe in it, um, which is to say very, very few showrunners, if any, really run their shows. Really, there's a non-writing producer who's really doing an awful lot of work that those showrunners wouldn't know how to do. So really, it's a partnership. You know, you're, When you say showrunner, you mean you're the lead writer-producer, and that is true. And you ultimately are the, the final voice creatively on the show, and that's a big job. But fortunately for me... You know, as I was saying, from the very first week I was on X-Files, Chris Carter threw me into these producing jobs. And what I found was, I mean, first I was just, wow, this is really hard. <laughs> but I found two things. First of all, it was a relief not to be writing. Oh, thank God I could go do something else other than sit there at my computer. And secondly, you learn so much about writing and storytelling by seeing what the prop master does and what the costume designer does and what the production designer does and most of all by seeing what the editor does that's how the story is told in the editing room. And you learn about writing, and you learn, oh, my script, I should have ended the scene there. Oh, why? That line was in the wrong place. You, when it's being edited, you see all your mistakes. And so I learned more for, by being in the editing room than anything else. And that's the wonderful thing about the way we make television in this country, is it gives you an opportunity not just to be a writer, but to be a filmmaker. And uh, after all, a script is simply a blueprint for a film. So to me, the more you understand about how films are made and the closer you are to production, the better. Well, on that note, I think we are out of time. Our, our therapy session is over. <laughs> Thank you very much.